Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. So today we begin this Sermon on the Mount. You know, Luke has a version of this as well, and we will uh, definitely consider it at times. It is probably the most famous piece of literature. Almost everyone has heard of it, probably quoted it, and if, even if they didn't know it, they were quoting it, and even if they've never really read it through. I've never taught it straight through. Uh, I've, taught it, I've taught much of what is in it, most of what is in it, but uh, never all the way through. And I have been looking to do that for about the last nine months, so it's been on my mind and heart. Uh, There's something amazing about seeing it as a whole. When you just look at the pieces, you sort of miss the forest for the trees. I'm calling this series The Good Life. Because I think it answers three key questions that all humanity really has to answer. One is, which life is the good life? What is considered the good life? In other words, what, is, what does it mean to be well off? What is, it, what is true well-being? Who has it? How do you get it? Second question, how do you enter it? How does one approach God? How does one get in to this good life? And then what happens to a person who enters it? What does a good person look like? So the answers to these questions center around the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, John 1, 4, very simply, in him was life, speaking of Jesus, and the life was the light of men. Jesus was sent to bring that life to make it known to all humanity. Now, what did that sort of look like? Well, we have to begin right before that sermon, because chapter 5, 3, and 4 really set up what chapter 5 through 7 are about. It's very, very difficult to understand the sermon itself if you don't get what comes before. So we're going to look at this person of Jesus and why this sermon comes out of his mouth at the moment that it does. So what I want to do is I want to just back up and look at four quick things that sort of set up the sermon, and then I want us to give an overview of the sermon. So let's start with this Jesus' ministry beginning, and it starts in chapter 3, verse 16, where he's being baptized by John. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened. Tremendous phrase. The title of this talk today, the heavens are open. 
He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him, and behold, a voice came from heaven, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. And so this whole image of the heavens being opened is God saying, I'm opening up my life and my Son to you. I am making my life available to human beings through my Son. That's the first thing. And the second thing is this text that comes soon after where Jesus sort of explains, where, where Matthew is explaining where, where Jesus is going to take this. Uh, to what degree are the heavens open? Who are they open to? And you get this, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the, uh, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. You just get this feeling that it's, it's broad and spreading out. It's not just Israel. People dwelling in darkness. Listen, the Galilee of the Gentiles. It's going far. This is a message that reaches far and wide. Anyone who dwells in darkness can see this light. And those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, anywhere the shadow of death, which is literally every spot on this planet, in the universe, hangs over, where the shadow hangs over you, this is a message for you. And I love, on them, a light has dawned. With the heavens opened and Jesus now present, a light has dawned upon every spot that death hangs over. And this idea of a dawning is a new day. It's a new beginning. It's a message of hope for anyone and everyone everywhere. So that's, so the heavens are open. They're open to every spot on this planet and everyone. And then you have Jesus saying this. From that time, or John Jesus was preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he got the heavens open, literally reaches over every spot on the planet. What does he say to every one of these people? It's literally this simple. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So in light of this new reality, this new day, this new opportunity... The kingdom of heaven has come right here. It, it is at hand. It is right here. It has come down to us, this heavenly life, what we call eternal life, what we're calling the good life, God's life, being described as a kingdom. It's not just heaven coming down. It's the kingdom of heaven coming down. Uh, which means we're going to define this life, at least John is going to define it, or Matthew is going to define it here, as a kingdom, which means authority and rule. And when you come into the good life, you come under God's authority and rule. 
where what he wants done gets done. Where he has final say over everything that pertains to life. And the idea of repent we looked at a couple of weeks ago. In other words, in light of this new opportunity, the heavens have come, heavens have opened. It's reached every spot on the planet where death hangs over. And in fact, it's right here and present, defined as the rule of God, and an opportunity for you to rethink, repent, rethink and reconsider your whole approach to life. Because now, in association with my son, God would say, in association with Jesus, you have the option you've not had before of connecting your life with my life and being caught up in God's eternal purposes. In other words, I can have an eternal and everlasting life, the kind of life you kind of picture that's away and up in heaven because heavens have been opened. It has been made available to me right now. I don't have to wait to get to heaven to be heavenly. That my life can have the quality of, of eternity, not just never ending, but an everlasting kind of life that starts now. When God rules my life, my life here on earth, my very ordinary life increasingly takes on the substance of the eternal. An ordinary life that becomes an eternal kind of life. I've never really heard a better illustration of what that really entails than uh, Dallas Willard's use of uh, electricity. This is what he writes. He said, as a child, I lived in the area of southern Missouri where electricity was available only in the form of lightning. We had, we had more of that than we could use, he said. But in my senior year of high school, the REA, Rural Electrification Administration, extended its lines into the area where we lived, and electrical power became available to households and farms. When those lines came by our farm, he says, a very different way of living was presented to us. Our relationships to fundamental aspects of life, daylight and dark, hot and cold, clean and dirty, work and leisure, preparing food and preserving it, could then be vastly changed for the better. But we still had to believe in the electricity and its arrangements, understand them, and take the practical steps involved in coming to rely on them. Farmers, in effect, heard this message, repent, for electricity is at hand. Repent? What does that mean? It means rethink the way you have been doing all of your life. Turn from your kerosene lamps and lanterns. Turn from your ice boxes and cellars, your scrubbers and your rug beaters, your woman-powered sewing machines, and their radios with dry cell batteries. Because the power that could make their lives far better had come right through their neighborhood. Right to their property. And by making relatively simple arrangements, they could utilize it. And here's what he writes. Strangely, 
A few did not accept it. They did not enter the kingdom of electricity. Some just didn't want to change. Others could not afford it. Or so they thought. It's an amazing illustration. It's essentially what the kingdom of God. You rethink everything you've been doing. Every aspect of your life. You turn from your old ways of doing it. And you enter the kingdom. That's what happens. Someone else rules your life. You live it different. Now, if you're waiting for heaven to really get serious, to really focus on what God wants, it will be too late. Matthew 7. See if I have it up there. I may not. It literally says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. There is a moment in which it's too late. The opportunity and the availability pass. And the final thing that sort of leads up to the sermon that I want to describe to you is you say, okay, so this, now we have this opportunity. The lines of the kingdom are now running by. I can, I, they're available to me. What does that look like? Well, here's what happens at the end of chapter 4. After Jesus says this, this is what he says. He looks, comes by some folks, Simon and Andrew. They're just doing life, fishing. They're at work. And this is what Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. Doesn't matter what you're doing. Doesn't matter what stage of life you're in. If you want in this kingdom, if you want to know how it's made available to you, you follow me. Jesus is the centerpiece of the sermon. Its profundity comes because of who he is. Its availability comes to you by him and him alone. This sermon, as we'll see in a couple weeks, will devastate you. And your only chance of having the good life is through him. Now, I want us to sort of understand what it looks like to come into the kingdom that Jesus is saying. What happens when you follow me? Heavens have been open. They've been open to everything that has death hanging over it. You know you're supposed to turn and, and come under the rule of God. In order to do that, in order to, for the availability of this good life to, to you know, manifest itself in your life is to follow Jesus. This is essentially the story. And the sermon is sort of a picture of what happens when you follow. What happens if you say yes and you drop your nets and you take off? You drop everything you were doing. And you say, I'm going to do that. The sermon tells you what it looks like. And we're going to get a feel for that in a moment. Uh, and there's something about looking at the whole thing really quick before you get into the pieces Kind of like a puzzle box. I'm trying to remember. I recently was in a home. We were somewhere. This has been in the last years. I can't remember exactly where. Walked in, and you know how there's a little table somewhere set up. Somebody's got a puzzle going. 
And you can't, they haven't done enough yet for you to have any idea what they're doing, except that there's a cardboard box probably sitting really close by that has the picture of it. Because uh, you've got to see the whole thing in order to start putting the pieces together. It's kind of what I want to do with you. Um, so in these three chapters, you get a picture of the, the good life, the heavenly life, uh, which is invaded, literally invaded. Jesus comes, heaven opens, he's invaded life. And, over, and God's life is literally overlaid over mine because he just literally shows you how it falls into every area of your life. And uh, when that happens, you know, you have this happens. You know, you can, when you're in the kingdom, you pray things like this. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're not waiting for heaven. Heaven has opened and come down and made available. And I now, in this kingdom, am trying to figure out how to get that heavenly rule, that heavenly rule in my everyday life right here on this planet where I walk and step and sleep and live and work and relate. All those places. This is the kind of prayer you pray. God, you've got to come dominate this situation. And only those. It's, it's, even, it's even more. Look. Then something else happens to you. You seek it above everything else. All the other things, they're separate. They're not the focus anymore. They're hopefully added. It's the kingdom that I seek first. It's your priority now. These are the images. You see, only those who have come into the kingdom can seek it. Because only they are able to recognize it. It's kind of like the puzzle. You don't know what you're looking at if you don't have the whole picture in front of you, you don't know how it fits together. But once you recognize, once you recognize it, the best way I can describe it is sort of the matrix, the movie. Um, like there's this whole other reality going on that only certain people are privy to. You just can't see it until you're associated close enough with Jesus to see it. And all of a sudden, God's full world is open to you, kind of like in the Matrix. You can go on YouTube, and you can watch the initial moment when Neo meets Morpheus. Morpheus is the guru of the Matrix, this other reality. Neo is a novice. He's trying to figure it out. He's gotten glimpses, but he can't explain what's going on. And so someone has to walk him through those details. Jesus is our guide. And everything takes on different meaning. And when that meeting happens, Neo says, it's everywhere. It's everywhere you look. It's present no matter where you are or what you're doing. Everything takes on a different meaning. Because God's world, God's full world has come into view. You will notice things you never noticed. You will feel things you've never felt. You will want things you have not wanted. You will be drawn to things you've never been drawn to. You will be warned of things you've never been warned of. 
you say, wow, I'm kind of interested. All right, put on your goggles. They're right behind your seat. Put on your goggles. We're going in. So if you put on your goggles and you go in, let me just walk you through. I'm not going to use, probably not going to put any verses up here now. I just want you to just sort of take this tour with me through the Sermon on the Mount to get a feel for what happens when you start to see reality, all reality, the way God sees it and the way he has presented it. So let's start with the Beatitudes. We will spend some time in those in the coming weeks. The Beatitudes blessed. In other words, fortunate are the ones who get in here. Fortunate are the ones who enter the kingdom. Anyone, really. Not a special group. The point of the Beatitudes is to say, you're never going to be, you're never going to believe who gets to come in here. Wait a minute. This sounds like a, a special group of people only. No, remember, the light has dawned over every spot on the planet. That's not how we normally think of entering something really special. No, you got to be a certain kind of people. But anyone with confidence and connection to Jesus can just march right in to God's realm. Now, this was so radical in Jesus' day. It's radical in our day, too, as we'll see. But but the point of it is to say this is not a religion. Get this. Beatitudes essentially say there's no system. You have to work. You know, you have to have to work a system for things. Well, you got to go through there, you got to go through that, you got to go through this. There's no system. This would have blown the minds of the religious system of Jesus' day the red tape and the hoops and the qualifications. Jesus drops that right there in a moment. Talk about a change of culture. Jesus says, you leave that to me. And my promise to you after the Beatitudes is you will become, you will be transformed into salt and light of the earth. I will take you from anywhere you are without any qualifications and I'll transform you into the salt and light of the earth. That's what he says. These are not a secret group of people when they come into the kingdom. When you come into the kingdom, you don't get a secret decoder ring, and you come inside, and then you got special. That doesn't happen. You come into the kingdom, and the whole world knows you got in there because you're impacting everything going on around you. You have a, a visible and a potent impact on the world. How is that going to happen? How? And here's what Jesus says right after that. Here's what happens. Jesus says, I'm going to radically change your view of integrity. I'm going to radically change the way you view people. And I'm going to create and orient your heart, the deepest part of you, to want it. To want to be whole on the inside and out. 
and to see people the way I see them. I will do that in you. And Christ says right after that, I'm the one who will determine what life is like in here. You don't get in here and start making rules. When you come into the kingdom and under my authority, I will show you exactly how to live in the situations in your life. I will set the standard for morality in all categories of life. And you'll hear this phrase a lot by Jesus. You have heard it said. But I say to you. I say to you. And so he becomes the essential authority and guide for how to live life in the kingdom. I'll teach you that it's not just adultery that's a problem. It's lust. And you know, when you come into the kingdom, all of a sudden you start to realize that it's not just not doing, not committing adultery that's a problem. There's something far deeper, more sinister, that I have to deal with in my heart if I'm going to treat people not like objects to use sexually. I got a lot of work to do in there. And the fact that I haven't committed adultery has, hasn't solved the problem at all. And when you're in the kingdom, see, like Neo, you see all the facets of that in ways you never have before. You take precautions in ways you never have before. That's what you see. Same with murder. Are you happy you've never murdered anybody? Jesus would say, ah, we got a lot of work to do. Any kind of anger in your life that wreaks any kind of havoc, separates, disintegrates, alienates relationships, I'm going to deal with that too. Gets deeper and you're like, oh, I never saw that. I never saw that. No, because you never had a guide into the new reality. And you realize really fast, you're addicted to your own standards. You're addicted to them. And Jesus shatters your moral constructs. And you're like, oh my gosh, I'm hanging, dangling here. I thought I was, I thought I had this figured out. I was standing on firm ground. You're dangling. Speaking of addictions, once you start to realize you're addicted to these standards, Jesus takes you on a tour. It's almost as if he makes a sharp left, and pretty soon you're, you're walking around to a new kind of addiction you see, and it's an addiction to status. The way that you are so concerned about what people think about you. This is chapter 6 is that turn. To the degree that you'll even take the basic practices of any kind of spiritual life like prayer and fasting and giving and use it to prop yourself up and make yourself feel good and hope other people see it because that's the way people outside the kingdom live. 
I hope somebody saw me do that. I hope somebody gives me props for that. Because we're more concerned about what people think than what God thinks. And all of a sudden in the kingdom, you start to realize, oh my goodness, it's only what he thinks is matters. I live literally for an audience of one. All of those spiritual activities, I can do them not in the presence of anyone. Because Matthew 6 says, your father sees. Your father sees. You have a relationship with God now that doesn't need external performance. You don't have to compare yourself to other people anymore. Beware, he says, of practicing your righteousness before other people to be seen by them and praised by others. See, your life is now lived before God alone. God's presence is so real, so palpable that you don't play spiritual games anymore. How relieving would that be? I'm good. You're not good. I'm not comparing myself to you anymore. That's part of what our addiction to standards does. It creates this superiority complex. Pretty soon, I've just got to worry about what everybody else thinks. Even spiritual activities, which Matthew says, Jesus says, connects you to a personal God so you don't have to impress anyone. I mean, it's exhausting doing that. Jesus shatters your need for approval. Just as soon as you're done with that addiction, another addiction appears, and it's an addiction to stuff. I want things, I want money, because I want security, and I'm obsessed with security. And it's revealed in my constant anxiety about what I don't have and what I don't know is going to happen. But with Jesus, you slowly learn that nothing here secures or satisfies. And let me tell you, this, the addiction to status and stuff and standards, this is hard work. It takes a lifetime. And not until eternity do we fully get it. But the process begins now of separating yourself from your obsession for things which drives most of us insane. Our standards, our, our status, and our stuff is, is, is the stuff that's killing us. So with that, begin to drop your obsessions and you focus on things that last forever. It's so refreshing to stop thinking and worrying and desiring the things that just don't matter. Who doesn't want that? Relief. Things that don't rot, things that can't be lost, Jesus shatters your insecurity. And then right out of that, which is like once you just feel devastated already, now you're just you're partly relieved and partly crushed. And you get to chapter 7, and immediately God turns to how you treat people, how you deal with people. 
And specifically, how do you deal with people who aren't perfect, who have faults? I mean, a great deal, a great percentage of the pie of our lives is dealing with people and people problems and inadequacies in people. It's draining. It leaves us at a loss a good deal of our lives. I don't know what I'm going to do about I don't know what I'm going to do about that. So-and-so. I got to deal with so-and-so. Because Jesus is going to deal right with this issue of faults because he's going to say, if I can love people at their worst, I can love people anytime. If I can love people at their worst, I can love them at any time. And this sort of addresses another addiction we have which is our addiction to fix people. We have that addiction. It sort of, again, grows out of an underlying superiority, and it can get really off balance really well. And what, one of the things that Jesus brings to your life and in, 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 in the kingdom of God when you're letting him rule is this, is this sense of release from the pressure of fixing everybody. It's another great relief As he begins by saying, do not judge others. Now, this is the verse that's probably the most known and the most quoted. And the reason is, and Jesus hits the nail right on the head, is because every single one of us universally hate it when people do that to us. Nothing will drain you and stretch you And weigh you down like somebody's judgment on you. Remove, Jesus says, the log that's in your own eye before you take the splinter out of someone else's. This is what people in the kingdom learn. They've learned hanging around with Jesus that they've got problems. And because they've learned they have problems, they are so much more gracious with other people who have them. So Jesus essentially says, number one, gives you little four little things that we'll look out in detail. First, you got to fix yourself and you got to inspect yourself first. The moment you see fault somewhere, do self-inspection. That's what the kingdom teaches you. And the second thing, because he'll say, right here, don't give to dogs what's holy and do not throw pearls before swine. What is Jesus saying? He's essentially saying, once you do get that, that log out of your eye and you really do want to help someone with a splinter in theirs, you're, you're not going to manipulate and coerce and jam down people's throats what they need. The same way you wouldn't give a hog pearls and you wouldn't throw what's holy to a dog because they're not, it, it's, it's not what they want right now. And some people aren't ready for the splinter to come out of their eye. How do you treat those people in your life? 
because we got a lot of pearl pushers in the kingdom. Force feeding truth to people in our lives, in our homes. There's no coercion, there's no manipulation, there's no harassment. That's not how you got into the kingdom. That's not how you're getting transformed. Don't put it on other people. If they're ready for your help, give it to them. If they're not, don't jam it down their throats. Don't harass, don't coerce and manipulate people to change. Don't control people. You're relieved of that. The third thing Jesus will say, to how we deal, deal with people that he'll say, he said, pray. Ask, seek, knock. God knows what's needed. Entrust people to God for real change. Do you really think you're changing anyone? Didn't you learn when you came into the kingdom, Jesus had to change you? And then he ends that little section with the golden rule applied to the worst kinds of people in your life. The ones who are wrong in your eyes and won't change. He says, whatever you want others to do to you, you do to them. Of course, that applies to everything, but it especially applies to people who aren't meeting up to your standards. How would you want to be approached? You want somebody digging in your eyes, got a big log sticking out of theirs? I don't want anybody looking for a splinter in my eye with a big log sticking out of theirs. Jesus just says, that's not how we treat people. And then the finale. Jesus says, let me, let me, let me, let me wrap this up. And his biggest concern, his biggest concern is don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. So many people think that they know what it's like to live in the kingdom. They just assume they know. They assume they already have a good, relation, good enough relationship with God. They assume they're already living the good life. but they don't. This is a real, real issue and problem. And Jesus gives four couplets, four visuals to describe this problem and for us to be aware of it. If this isn't what your life looks like, everything I've been describing from the Beatitudes to the hogs, then you might be deceived Because there's two gates. There's a wide one and a narrow one. The wide one's easy. And if you've got this just sort of nonchalant, going with the flow, spirituality and culture and everything else, then you've probably missed it. Because what I'm describing to you is a very, very narrow path. Don't miss it. Don't just, you know gallivant through life thinking you know God 
And then he'll say, there's two guides. These false teachers will come in. and One of them will, and they're false teachers. And it doesn't matter if it's a teacher or somebody in your life that you're looking to, but they don't have truth. They don't look at the scriptures. They don't, they don't concentrate on that truth, and it'll throw them off. It'll throw you off track. You've got to be really, really, really in tune to who you're listening to. And then Jesus says there's two receptions. Because Jesus says the last thing I want is for you to get to heaven. And you talk about how, how well you know me. And I have to look at you and say, I've never known you. I'm either going to say, I know you come in here. This is the whole idea of waiting till heaven to be good. These are the people who say they know God, but they don't live anything like the kingdom he just described. Like, I never knew you. We never, we never hung out. I, you, never apprenticed your, you, you never apprenticed yourself to me. You never, uh, you never connected to me and let me have say in your life. Now you want me to have say in your life? It's too late. And then he concludes it with this. Two builders. One of them's wise, one of them's foolish. One of, one of them builds his life on the rock, one of them builds it on sand. One of them does what I said. One of them literally let me rule them. And one of them didn't. And then he ends the entire sermon on the most devastating note. This graphic image of life without him as the foundation of it. And everyone who hears these words of mine, does not do them, will be like the foolish man. Built his life on the sand. And listen to this. The rain fell. The floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Everything I spent my life on, crushed. Because I thought I knew. And see, you talk about the good life. Without God, it just doesn't hold up. It just doesn't hold up. Life without God is not the good life. It's vulnerable. This life that Jesus offers, eternal life, is the life that can hear this hillside. What Jesus is describing in these three chapters can hold up. It's a life that can stand up to anything and everything. Nothing can touch it. No storm can touch it. Not disaster, not pain, not loss, not people, not failure, not even death can touch it. And it all starts with Jesus. And the question really boils down, do you know him? Ah, not yet. Not done yet. Do you know him? Have you given him say? 
over everything in your life? If not, then no matter what you have, no matter what you have, you are not well off. You're vulnerable. You're not. Hear this, because this is the point of Jesus' last verse of this sermon. You are not safe in this world without me. Hear that. Let it go to the deepest part of you. You're not safe in this world without him. To bow your heads. I have one question. Do you really know him and have you given him say in your life? Those, that's, my exhortation is to surrender your life to him today, right now. You are here for a reason. Father, I pray again that your spirit would grab a hold of us, the deepest parts of who we are, and help us to realize that no matter what's going on in our lives, we are not safe without you. We're not safe without you. In Jesus' name.